prior to me being indicted and held accountable, every single day I woke up and was like, is this going to be my life for the rest of my life? Am I going to live this double life and still have to feed my habit? I asked myself that every single day and I saw no way out of it. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, episode number four. My name is Clifford Fuel, host of the podcast that aims to help you adapt and thrive. By adapt, I mean be flexible enough to come to terms with your new reality and, rather than fight it, work with it to make it work for you. By thrive, I mean find in your life all the joy and success and fulfillment that you may have been missing, maybe even actively postponing due to your past decisions and their consequences. Today is a special day for the podcast. My plan all along has been to feature guests who have been incarcerated and have grown and learned enough to share their stories for the benefit of those who need to hear. But I also wanna feature on occasion, compassionate professionals from the justice system whose insights and advice can be of use to people who are in that system. Today, I'm fortunate to have both. My guest is a 37-year-old Native American woman who grew up in central Wyoming on the Wind River Indian Reservation and who, by her own account, no matter what school she attended, always did her homework. Terry Smith is the daughter of an absent father and a single mom who supported six children by caring for special needs patients, disabled people, and senior citizens. Terry told me, and I quote, she always worked with the vulnerable people and she was good at it. She has a good heart. Terry attended elementary schools in St. Stephen's, Riverton, and in Salt Lake City, where she later attended middle and high school, as well as earned her bachelor's in law degrees from the University of Utah. Terry returned to Wyoming and rose to become chief judge of the Wind River Travel Court, where she oversaw many difficult cases and where, as we will discuss today, she got into trouble herself. Terry was a member of what I have come to call my class of seven, Stay Free Forever Cognitive Awareness class students that inspired the idea for this podcast. She is rearing two young children with her man, Leslie, and is actively working on several fronts to improve the lives of people on the reservation and in her hometown of Riverton. Welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, Terry Smith. Thank you. I'm glad for the opportunity. So very curious to learn, what did you love so much about going with your grandma to powwows when you were a really young girl? I just loved being around the people in my community. Back then, it was like 30 years ago, it was such a warm feeling to be out there and to see my grandma. My grandma would sit behind the drum and she would sing. I have a twin sister, so being with my sister as well, it was just a warm feeling. You know, hearing the, hearing the song, seeing the people, just feels like home. How have powwows changed from 30 years ago to today? Well, to be honest, I don't go to powwows anymore. The ones I do go to, you know, that I've been to recently are more about, I feel, about money, contesting, dancing. Um, The ones I used to go to as a child were just like community things where people would come together and there wasn't contests. You know, it was just to socialize. And probably plenty of good food? Yes, tons. 
every time we would go to a powwow or a feast, my grandma would bring like a Tupperware <laughs> to bring leftovers home in. What was your favorite dish that grandma made? She would make fry bread pockets, right? So fry bread stuff with meat and cheese and potatoes. Lovely. And your twin sister, where is she today? She's in Salt Lake City with her children. And, you know, we actually got in trouble together. And so we went to prison at the same time. And she got a longer sentence than I did. But she got released this time last year. So she's been home for about a year. And she's doing amazing. And it's just beautiful to see the change in her. We'll certainly get into your offense in a little bit. But I'd like to talk a little bit about your time studying to be a lawyer and your first days as a lawyer. What was that like? Law school was pretty intense. I graduated from my undergrad in 2007, and I went straight into law school that fall. And right before I started law school, I had I had a boyfriend. It was my first boyfriend, my first everything. And um, we were together for almost three years. And he was in law school when I was an undergrad. And he had passed away six weeks before graduation. So that was very, very traumatic. And I believe that's where my addiction started. But I still managed to. I had set a goal to graduate law school and come home and work for my tribe. And I, I kept that goal in mind. I mean, I did a lot of things I probably shouldn't be doing, but I kept my goal and I kept going. So law, law school was intense, but I made it through. What um, claimed such a young man? Drugs. Okay. Drugs and alcohol. Yeah, He was 28. Was- Were these things vices just to handle the stress of law school, do you think? And were you part of that scene? Yeah, you know, you know, now that I'm, you know, I'm older now, it's been 16 years. Yesterday was actually his death anniversary. So it's been 16 years since he's passed. And, you know, I had met him when I was 19 and he died when I was 21. So now, you know, looking back and now knowing the things that I know and the treatment that I've done and the trauma work that I've done, I can see now his use of drug and alcohol was, I feel, a trauma response and also stress from being the first tribal member in his tribe to attend law school and trying to please his family. And so I know now his drug use was was more of a, um, kind of like mine, a reaction to trauma and just trying to get through that. Thank you for that. What tribe do you come from? I come from the Northern Arapaho here on the reservation. They must have been very proud to have you go to law school and graduate and come home to work in the community. Yes, they were. You know, I I was really blessed to have that support and that encouragement from my family and from people on the tribal council. Actually, part of my success in coming home was a gentleman on the tribal council had vouched for me and I got a job with the law firm that was representing our tribe for the past 20 years. So that's how I was able to get that job, was from the support of my tribal council. Nice. That's a great thing to have, is that kind of support. Did you enjoy yeah. being a lawyer? I did. You know, at first, I was um, I was really scared. It used to be really hard for me to talk to strangers and even talk on a phone. <laughs> so it was, it was kind of nerve-wracking at first. But, you know, it was always my goal, my dream to get my law degree and come home and work for my tribe. And so I was doing that. You know, I felt I felt accomplished. But I always felt like I didn't fit in, that I didn't belong there. And part of it is because I was using, you know, I was addicted to opiates for a very long time and I was able to hide it really well. I wasn't living with integrity. 
I always felt that it was always a heavy, ugly feeling. Is it fair to say that imposter syndrome, which is the name for something that you sort of just described, comes before drug use or is it come as a result of drug use or can they exist side by side with their own negative impulses? I'd say for me, it came because of the drug use. I feel like I didn't become an addict until right before I started law school when I was dealing with the loss of my boyfriend. I was never taught healthy coping skills. I didn't even know what those were before I went to treatment. Um, so I used pain pills to numb myself. And I knew they were wrong. I mean, I was going to law school. I knew I was breaking the law, right? So I, I would say for me, the imposter syndrome came from my drug use. And how long after being an attorney were you approached about becoming a judge or did you approach them? So I was actually approached by my tribal council. So I was an attorney for about five years, um, a private attorney. And then I became an associate judge and then the chief judge. It wasn't something that I sought out, something that I asked for. And actually, it really scared me because of the life I was living. But also, it was it was just not something I was personally ready for. But I didn't know how to say no when I was asked. I felt like I was obligated to. And I felt like I did have to represent my tribe and my people. And so I, I felt like I couldn't say no, even though I knew I wasn't ready for that type of responsibility. But I was the first Arapaho tribal member with a law degree. So I felt like I had a lot to live up to. That's a lot of pressure, and it wasn't really spoken, was it? It wasn't. I didn't voice it to anybody. So once you became a judge, how did your fellow attorneys react to you? Oh, everyone's very supportive. I've always had amazing support, even now. I worked at the Baldwin Crocker and Rudd's law firm in Lander, Wyoming, for five years, and they've been amazing. They've always been super supportive, and I was a public defender in Fremont County for about a year. You know, in Riverton and Lander is a small place. So everyone was super supportive when I got the judge position. Did it change course, you? No. Did it change me? You know, I, I I got more closed off when I became judge. I didn't want anybody to approach me asking, oh, my dad's in jail, my brother's in jail. Can you help me out? Like I, I became very secluded once I became judge because I didn't want any of that to happen. I encountered you as a judge. The first time you and I met, I was coming to introduce my courses to you. I sensed that you were keeping your cards very close to the vest and you ran a tight ship, was my impression. Was, <laughs> I, far, was I far off? <laughs> well, you know, when, when I was judge, I, I was very private. But when I was there, I, I tried to make sure everyone that worked there followed the law and order code and were a good fit and good to people in the community. So, yeah, maybe it was a tight ship. <laughs> Even when I think back now, though, I, I truly felt like I was living a double life, right? Like, and I justified so much in my head, you know, when I was at work. Okay, this was work. I did this at work. I didn't do this bad stuff at work, so it was okay, right? It was just, it was, it was two different, trying to live two different lives. Someone said there's no power in the universe so strong as that of a human being rationalizing his or her own behavior. That's very true. You know, when I um, was sentenced um, for my crime by Judge Johnson, who is an amazing judge, by the way, and who is very compassionate, understanding, and he actually swore me in to be an attorney. And then he was my sentencing judge. But he was in his sentencing, um, he said that he couldn't imagine the type of rationalization and justification I had to carry to 
to continue my drug use while still trying to do, fill this position. Like how heavy that must have weighed on me. And he was right. It was, it was heavy. So put it out there for us, Terry, what were you doing? What was a typical day like on the criminal side? So on the criminal side, <laughs> this still seems so weird. Um, I started using opiates in the fall of 2007 after my boyfriend had passed away. A friend of mine had introduced it to me and I took one and I liked it because I could sleep. I felt relaxed. Prior to that, it was so hard to sleep at night because I just pictured, you know, my boyfriend dead because I had found him. So when I was introduced to these pain pills, I didn't feel necessarily that pain. I felt relaxed. I could sleep. I felt, I felt good. And so I, I, it started off very kind of innocently. I'm like, oh, okay, it's the weekend. Sure. You know, and then it quickly went to every other weekend, then every weekend, then every day, I'd say within the first six months, I was taking them every day. And I wasn't indicted on drug charges until March of 2019. So 2007 to 2019, it was about 12 years. That's a long time to use drugs. And then when did you get into distribution? I live on the reservation, right? And it's a small community. I don't live in the city. I don't have access to drugs, I guess, like I would if I lived in the city. So to fund my drug habit, my twin sister lived in Salt Lake City and she had met an old man who was getting his medication from the VA. He's a veteran. And they were just giving him boatloads of medication. And he would give them to my sister to sell and then, you know, make money and give him a portion and she'd keep a portion. And so she would send them back to the reservation and a cousin of ours would distribute them and I would pick up the money and send it to my sister and I would get free pills out of it. I wasn't out there personally, individually selling to people. I mean, I was still breaking the law. I was still part of the whole thing. Right. But I was just picking, not just, but I was picking up the money and giving it to my sister. So it was a conspiracy to distribute oxycodone. And was cocaine involved as well? So I had a delivery of cocaine charge and that charge came from, you know, I got to a point where I was being watched by DCI and I had met up with someone to exchange cocaine for pills and they had it on camera. So it was a delivery of cocaine charge. So how did it all come crashing down? The FBI came to my office one day in March, March of 2019, so four years ago, came to my office and asked to talk. And at first he had said he wanted to talk about, well, so one of my cousins was actually murdered um, oh. a few months before that. And he had come into my office saying he wanted to talk about that. And then it quickly became apparent that he was there for me. Um and he had pictures and he was asking questions. So that's when it came all crashing down. And I was eight months pregnant um, when all this was starting to happen. You know, and I'm an attorney, so I knew what was coming. I knew what all this meant. And of course, I got really scared. <laughs> and I had reached out to my former colleague at the law firm in Lander and told him what was happening. And he jumped to support me. He got me an attorney who then contacted the U.S. attorneys. And on March 21st, I was indicted on those drug charges. March 18th, I went on maternity leave from my job because I knew what was coming. It was still all legal stuff. So I couldn't say, hey, this is happening. 
So I had took a leave of absence because of my maternity right before the charges came out. That was kind of a blessing in timing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was. What was your feeling at this point? Initially, when when the FBI came, there was a, a huge sense of relief. Oh, God, like, it's fine. It was scary. I was beyond scared, <laughs> to say the least. But it was a huge sense of relief. Like, I don't have to live like this anymore. Because prior to me being indicted and held accountable, every single day I woke up and was like, is this going to be my life for the rest of my life? Am I going to live this double life and still have to feed my habit? I asked myself that every single day and I saw no way out of it because there was such a stigma with addiction and and the position I held. I didn't want to disappoint anybody. There's a lot of shaming guilt that came with this when it finally did happen. Yeah, I didn't see any way out of it. So when it finally happened, it, there was a sense of relief. There was also a huge sense of fear, the fear of not knowing. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what my prison sentence was going to be. The unknown scared the crap out of me. (laughs) As well it should or would. Yeah. Was there a trial? There wasn't. You know, I knew what I did. I was guilty of this stuff. And obviously being a judge myself and an attorney, like I, I was ready to take accountability, you know, whatever that consequence meant. So I was indicted in, like I said, March of 2019. I was re-indicted in May of 2019. And in August, I pled guilty to my charges. So I had three charges. I had the using a telephone to communicate drug activity and then delivery of cocaine and conspiracy to deliver oxycodone. They dismissed the telephone charge. And so I pled guilty to the delivery of cocaine and conspiracy to deliver oxycodone. And I did a cold plea, which meant I just pled guilty. I didn't have a plea agreement where I said, okay, you plead guilty, you get this amount of time. It was a cold plea, and we were going to argue the sentence. And what did you get at the sentencing hearing? So I knew right before going into my sentencing hearing that I would be sentenced to no less than 12 months and no more than 18 months. I had a really good attorney, thank God, and I ended up getting a 12-month split sentence. So I got six months in federal prison and six months on house arrest. I didn't view prison as, like, um, bad or horrible. I mean, I knew I was there to serve the consequences of my of my choices in active addiction, right? But I had done inpatient treatment while I was on bond because I was on bond for almost two years because of COVID and other things out of my control. So I had a lot of skills that I did not have before going to treatment. I worked a lot on gratitude. I come from a family where my other sisters have been into prison before. So I kind of knew what to expect going to federal prison. It was a camp. So it wasn't a really a lockdown behind the bar type of facility. It was a camp where you have a job, you get video chat with your children, you have cable TV, you can go outside and run. So it wasn't a, it didn't seem like a scary place to me. So I I went in with a mindset of just, okay, I'm here to serve my time. I got six months. I can do this. I was away from my children. I have two boys. So I'd never been away from them before that. And Um, one of them was really young, just a few months. You know, I was pregnant when I was indicted and I had my baby in May of 2019 and I went into treatment in July 29th of 2019 and I took my baby with me. He was three months old. We stayed there for five months and I left my four-year-old when I went to treatment and that was extremely hard on him and me because I never left him before. And then when I went to prison, I had to leave both of them. You know, my baby by that time was 18 months and he was, I was still breastfeeding. So that was really, really, really hard. And that's why I told the judge. 
I'm here and I'm taking accountability and I'm ready to serve the consequences of my choices. I'm scared for the fact that my children are now going to have to pay for the choices I made. That was the scariest part. That's what you call naming it and owning it. Did it have any effect on the judge? Nope. <laughs> Were you proud of yourself for saying that? Yes. Yes. I was, um, it felt good to just take accountability and, you know, and leave it in his hands and, and just take it as it comes. Adverse reaction from the community. Did you get any people trying to shame you, blame you? Probably part of my, um, I guess my defense mechanism when all this happened, obviously we live in a small town, right? It was plastered all over the newspapers and County 10, which is like a little news site that everyone reads. It was everywhere. But I purposely didn't read any of the papers. I deactivated social media. I didn't read anything on County 10 for a good three years. <laughs> but I know it was out there. Some of my cousins would get upset if somebody was saying something about me and they would try to defend me on the internet. So yeah, there's a lot of people saying things. My partner was on tribal council when it happened. I, I feel horrible. He took a he took a big brunt of that, you know, publicly, because when it happened, I just kind of went into myself, I stayed home, then I went to treatment, but he was still out there. And he had to be out there. He was on tribal council. He felt the brunt of that from people, which still really bothers me. I, I feel horrible about it. But he's still here. And he stood by me. So now that I finally put myself back out there, right, I finally got a job and back in the community. And I was so nervous about putting myself back out there and going into my tribal community again, because everyone knew now, Right. But I actually went to a recovery celebration event on the reservation this July with my new job. And I actually felt welcomed. I didn't feel anybody's ugliness or anybody's judgment. I felt good. Because you have such a devotion to your people and you wanted to come back from law school and, and you committed to serving your people in order to take care of your own needs. You chose to supply the people on the res with the same things that you were hooked on with the opportunity to get them hooked and get them go down that path. How did you justify that in your own mind? So to, to be honest, like in the moment, I didn't think that far ahead or about anyone else, but myself in the moment when I'm in my addiction, you know, I didn't even think about my own kids. You know, I made choices that made me leave them later, but no, it's not lost on me the, the negative effect that I had in contributing to the cycle of addiction and destruction by bringing these drugs in. Once I was pulled out of it, right, when I was indicted, you know, I realized what I was doing, what I was contributing to. It was, I guess one of the things when I was in it that I did try to rationalize was in my own head, right? I'm like, well, I'm not bringing these drugs to work. I'm not selling out of my work. I'm when I'm on the bench, I try not to hear criminal cases because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Um, there's little things like that that went through my head. To be honest, when I was helping with this conspiracy to bring the pill to the reservation, I was thinking about my immediate needs, what I needed to not be sick, what I needed to get through the day. But now that I'm out of it and I can see that I contributed to the cycle, now it just gives me so much more motivation to do the work that I do now. Right. So I'm, I'm a clinical assistant at the Center of Hope where we have people coming in who are detoxing off opiates, fentanyl, methamphetamine, alcohol. And I have the ability and the and the chance to help them get through that, help them get to treatment, even driving them to treatment. So I, I feel passion and like purpose in doing that because I know I was on the other side of it, contributing negatively 
you know, supplying drugs to people. So now that I'm out of it, I can see the negative effect and it just gives me more purpose to help more. And, and when I was in it, I couldn't, I didn't want to think about the effect I was having, right? I was just worrying about me getting my next pill. So if anyone ever tells you that drugs aren't powerful, you've got something to say to that. Yes, I do. You know, and, and I, I, that was one of the things I worked on in treatment was like, how did I let it get this bad? I know right from wrong, right? I mentioned I know right from wrong. I was an attorney. I was a judge. I knew what I was doing was wrong. Why can't I stop? Why am I so afraid to go get help? And again, it goes back to the stigma of addiction and also just not knowing the shame and guilt that comes with using and then numbing myself more because I feel all those things. But I know now like how much the pain pills and the drugs and alcohol had on my brain, right? Like when you're in addiction, it's a scientific thing. I felt like I needed it. People say addiction is a choice. And I think initially, yeah, we choose to, to drink or, or do drugs. But once we're in it, it's not a choice anymore. It's like our brain and our body tells us we need that. I have to do everything I can to get that. I think once I realized that, that's what it was. I didn't, I don't feel as much shame and guilt about it. I know now the only choice I have now is a first choice. Once I make that first choice to use or drink, then, and then I, my addiction is going to kick back in. So I think I understand it better now. Like addiction just isn't a choice, the whole scientific physiological thing. There are likely a lot of people out there who needed to hear what you just said. And I bet you there's some people out there who are wondering about taking drugs while you were pregnant. How did you deal with that? You know, when I was indicted, I was eight months pregnant. My stomach was huge, right? And I'm sure people thought thought whatever and had questions, but no one's ever come out and asked me. CPS didn't show up when I had my baby or anything like that. You know, I was using for a long time, for 12 years. And I hid it from a lot of people. I hid it from my partner. I hid it from my doctor. The last two to three years of my addiction, I knew I needed help. I just didn't know how to get it. I was too scared to ask. But one of the things that I found was buprenorphine, Subutec. I was taking it for like two to three years. It's a long lasting opioid that is prescribed to people who have opiate use disorder and it helps stabilize them. You know, like it takes care of the physical withdrawal and cravings for other drugs. I was buying it from a friend because she had a, she had a legitimate prescription and she told me about it. And so the last two to three years of my addiction was using Subutex and pain pills. If I couldn't get pain pills then I would use Subutex. When I got pregnant, I researched it because of course I'm a smart girl, right? I know I shouldn't be using drugs when I'm pregnant, but I, I researched it and they actually prescribed Subutex to pregnant women. So I was illegally getting prescription from my friend while I was pregnant. And I would say I was using that about 85% of the time. Other 15%, I was using pain pills. I had read this study that said if women were taking at least 30 milligrams or less of opiates, it didn't affect their babies. So when I was using it, I was like, okay, I didn't take more than 30 milligrams. That was how I justified it in my head. But they prescribed Subutex for pregnant women. But when I was indicted, my friend who was selling me the Subutex got confronted too. The FBI showed up to her door because, you know, they had all my text messages and everything between me and her. So she got in trouble as well. And then I couldn't get it from her anymore. And I couldn't withdraw. Here I was eight months pregnant. Like you can't withdraw when you're pregnant. You're, you know, your risk of miscarriage. So I was then forced to get my own prescription which actually was a blessing in disguise. I should have done that a long time ago. I was so scared to do that. But, you know, I was forced to when all this happened. And thankfully, I got an amazing doctor out of Casper, out of Wyoming Counseling. And he was very 
compassionate and kind and understanding and assured me my baby would be fine, that this is what they prescribe to pregnant women all the time. And he was amazing. He didn't judge me. He had my back. And so I had my own legal prescription from like a week after I got indicted because I had to get in. And my baby came out fine, thankfully. But, you know, there is still uh, when, when a woman takes buprenorphine, subutex when they're pregnant, there's still, still a 50-50 chance your baby will come out dependent because it's, you know, you're putting this in your body. Thankfully, my son didn't. But I also just want other pregnant women to know that there's options out there. You don't got to keep using. With opiates and fentanyl so big now, there's options to get help. You don't have to, like, suffer in silence. What advice would you give to yourself, knowing what you know now? To myself as an addict using pain pills? Yeah. That there's a way out, that you don't have to live like this, that there's medication that can help. I just didn't know better. I, you just don't know what you don't know. I'm so, so used to living in chaos. I joined this this mom group online that's specifically for mothers who are pregnant and have children while they're on maintenance medication, Suboxone or Methadone, Subutex. So I'm, I'm still in that mom group now and I'm pretty active in it. And it's we just encourage other women who are on the medication or who are still using and need help, telling them the pros and cons of it and our own personal experiences so they're not afraid you know, when they're pregnant and have their baby, you know, just sharing our stories with them so they know it's going to be okay. Addicts, anybody who made mistakes can do anything by taking accountability and putting in the work to get better, you know, and asking for help and receiving it. A bit, a lot of people are afraid to ask for help. I was afraid to ask for help. Even just talking about our feelings, especially as Native people, we're taught not to talk about our feelings. You know, you just, be, you just get through it, but... You know, I counsel my my clients and anyone who I, I come in contact with that are struggling, you know, just I encourage them to feel their feelings and talk about it and reach out for help, you know, and own your mistakes, own whatever you've done, and then just work hard to do better, which, you know, the old me would have, would that would have been crazy to think about, but now I know it works, you know, like it worked for me, so... Let's say there are some people out there who haven't spoken up. They've been simmering with resentment and self-righteousness or whatever ill feelings they have. How would you encourage them to approach you if they were going to approach you? You know, I'm open to anybody coming at me in a respectful way and asking me questions, you know, asking me why or whatever questions they want to know. You know, a big part of my treatment was I didn't I didn't even know I was why I was doing this. It was a lot of shame and guilt. But it wasn't until I went to treatment and understood science behind addiction and the dysfunction of the family I grew up in and all those factors and how it played into the choices I made and the life I lived. I would encourage anybody to reach out to me if they feel some type of way. But I also understand there's still going to be some people who aren't ever going to forgive me or who are always going to think I'm this horrible person. And I think everyone's entitled to their opinion. You know, like for me, the way I deal with negativity in any situation is I know that I pay the consequences for the choices I made. And I know that I put in the work to be a better person and that I am doing everything I can to try to give back and not necessarily rectify the situation because I don't think you can ever be really rectified, but to make a difference in a positive way. You know, I work in the recovery community now with a lot of Arapahoe people. So I know I'm doing everything that's within my control. I can't control what somebody else thinks or feels about me or anything. Does your experience give you street cred with the people you deal with? (laughs) 
You know, well, so I'm a peer specialist, right? I just got certified as a peer specialist. And a peer specialist is somebody who's who has a lived experience in, with addiction um, or mental health. So I, I'm a person in recovery, helping others find recovery. So I relate to people on a level that a clinician can't. I don't know if I would call it street cred, but I, I I relate with them on their level, right? I know what they're going through. I know what withdrawal feels like. I know the shame and guilt they feel not being able to stop. I love being a peer specialist. Do you see similarity in the people you work with or is everybody different? I think we're all very, very similar in that I've seen in it, even of myself that people in addiction, it starts from a trauma experience, whether they were neglected as a kid or everyone in the family used alcohol and drugs. We're, we're not using these drugs to feel good, right? We're not using alcohol to have a good time. I mean, you know, initially, but when we're using it to excess where we get in trouble and we can't control it, we're not using it to have a good time, right? We're, we don't want to feel the things that we're feeling. So I think a lot of people in recovery are the same in that sense. And that's your job now as a peer specialist. In June of last year, I looked for recovery organizations because I realized how accepting they are, how they give people second chances. So I found the Volunteers of America here in Riverton, the Center of Hope, which is a transitional living center. We help people who are social detoxing and people who just completed treatment, help them have a safe, sober place to live and get on their feet. So I was hired as a behavioral health technician or a recovery health technician. It's a 24-7 facility. I was promoted to the clinical assistant position. And in, in the meantime, I got certified as a peer specialist as well. So I'm in charge of admissions and I run peer groups every day I'm at work. Coping skills or I do a lot of gratitude because that's a big part of my recovery. So I run groups with them. I take clients to medical appointments. I drive them to treatment. I pick them up from treatment. I just visit with them. Like, I, I love my job. It doesn't even feel like work to me. Does it feel like a come down from being an important judge? You know, the pay does, but it's not about the money. Like, what was humbling was when I got out of prison and I went to the halfway house in Casper and you have to get a job there. And plus, you want a job. You don't want to stay in that center. That place sucks. Um, so <laughs> I got a job right away as a housekeeper. And that was intense work, like physical work. And it wasn't, it didn't pay very well, but I never worked so hard for a, such a small paycheck in my life. But I was so proud of that paycheck because I, I worked really hard for that. But it, it is, it is humbling when I made a lot of money and, and not, and even now I don't make a lot, it's a nonprofit. So I don't make a lot of money, but for me, thankfully, I don't have to worry about the money and my partner case very well care of me and the kids. For me, it's about making a difference, you know, and giving back and, I know that sounds cliche, but that's truly what it is. I mean, if it was about the money, I'd find a different job. Um, but I love, I love it there. What do you see yourself doing in the future? So actually part of my plan is, you know, when, when I got charged, I got disbarred for five years and I can apply to get my law license back in June of 2024, which is about in a year. And my goal is to apply to get that back. I mean, I worked really, really hard for that and it cost a lot of money. So I, I intend to get my law license back. Thankfully, the state bar has been very compassionate and understanding through all this. So my goal is to get my law license back. But I don't know, I really love what I do right now. I really believe in the VOA, the Volunteers of America and their mission and the things they do for people in recovery and people getting out of prison. They actually created the first halfway house in the 1920s. So I don't know, I see myself staying here at the VOA 
for, I don't know, I guess indefinitely until I, I truly, I, I love it here. And it's three minutes from my house. So it's, it's just, it just works so well. You know, I think a lot of people that work in those type of organizations are there because they've either been affected by addiction themselves or have a family member. So they're there for the right reasons, you know, not there for the paycheck. Tell me about your family that you grew up in and the family you're trying to rear today. So the family I grew up in, and, you know, I feel like now I can talk about these things without getting super emotional or feeling embarrassed because I, I did a lot of work on myself in treatment and learned a lot about my childhood and how I grew up and how dysfunctional it was. You know, I didn't realize it was dysfunctional when I was in it. You know, it's just my normal. Like you mentioned, my mom was a single mom, four sisters, my older brother. You know, I grew up seeing all my uncles in prison. I saw my mom and other family addicted to alcohol and drugs. And so growing up, alcohol and drugs and incarceration was just normal. It was just a normal part of life that you just dealt with. And, and it, it was just always there. And it just seemed like it would always be there. And now that I know that it's not normal, right? It's not normal to have every one of your uncles in prison and have all your sisters have gone to prison. I want to live a better life for my kids. You know, granted, I went to prison and had to be away from them, but my kids have never been around alcohol or drugs, and I want to keep it that way. I want to show my kids that they're safe. For me, when I think about my childhood, it's kind of like a like a dichotomy, I guess, because when I think back and I, and I see all the unsafe situations I was put in that I had no control over, it makes me sad. But I also feel like I always felt loved when I was a kid. Like my mom was very affectionate. My aunt, my grandma, like I always felt loved. I always felt like like they were there. Like I could tell them anything. So, and I want to carry on that part with my kids that they feel loved and that they feel heard and that I'll always be here for them no matter what. Thank you. Lovely. The environment kids are growing up in today, they're exposed to an awful lot. You can really control their exposure to alcohol and drugs when they're at the ages your young kids are. Do you have any thoughts on what a community can do as kids get older and it's, it's out there? You know, I was actually just having this conversation. I just was recently elected to the Recovery Wyoming Board, and I was talking to the executive director, and we were talking about this, about prevention, drug and alcohol prevention. I told her how when I was a kid... Well, I was like in high school, junior high, high school in Salt Lake City and had this whole campaign about drugs. Like, this is your brain and this is your brain on drugs, right? They cracked that egg. Yes. Um, but then they also had a lot of meth, how horrible meth was. And that really stuck with me. I think meth is the most horrible drug ever, right? I'm not, and granted, I mean, I've done other drugs, but I've never done meth because I saw all of those um, advertisement about it. And so I, I think that stuff really does make a difference. And now with how big opiates and fentanyl are now in every community. I think having those type of ads and those conversations with even little kids is important, you know, like even just talking about things. I think as a community, especially here, we don't talk about things. We don't talk about our feelings. We don't talk about addiction, but it's here. It's rampant. And that's why part of me wants to be and is very vocal about my recovery. I want people to know that anyone can become an addict, but anyone can find recovery. You know, we just need to have the conversation, having the conversation. Like I said, a lot of it is just silence and nothing's done, but we have to talk about it. Very well said. Before we move on to the other two segments of this, 
I'd like to ask you to talk about gratitude since it's something that you think about and talk about just about every day with people. What's your take on gratitude these days? Gratitude, you know, I, it's a huge part of my recovery. And I tell my clients this, that some people find recovery through AA or counseling or whatever it is. But for me, my, my recovery revolves around gratitude. I wake up and I have a journal a gratitude journal. And it's just a simple one that like you write down three things that you're grateful for every day. And I've done this every single day since I came home from treatment in January of 2020. So in the morning, I do three gra- three gratefuls and at the night as well. And I realize now in my addiction, I was very selfish and ungrateful. I was so stuck in my own pain. I didn't even enjoy or cherish the things around me, the things that I did have. I had a great partner and children, a career, and I did. It was just, I took it for granted. So, you know, now I know what it feels like to lose those things, to be without my kids, to be without my partner, to lose my career, to be alone in prison. I think without that experience, I wouldn't have this much gratitude. It just makes me that much more grateful for the things that I do have, for all the simple things. So. Two more parts to this podcast, one of which is to consult a workbook that someone else has completed and share it with you and get your thoughts on what this person said in their workbook. Okay by you? Okay, sounds good. The person said, I think this workbook had its pluses and its minuses. I like thinking about the way I think, but I think talking about other people's problems isn't always the best way to get there. What do you think of that? Um, I don't know if I agree with the, with the whole thing, right? I, I think mm-hmm. I agree with the part where he says that he likes talking about the way we think. But, but I think talking in general, whether it's your problems or somebody else's problems, is beneficial no matter what. I think we can, if we listen to somebody else's problems, we can relate and give us more understanding. And if we can relate, then we can make us feel not, not so alone. I tell people, your course, whether it's online or a workbook, you're going to read true stories about other people. Because they're talking about other people and they're free to say, well, this person should do that. Or if I were them, I would do this. And pretty soon, it's personal. Exactly. Thank you for validating me. Uh, (laughs) You're welcome. And as you know, part three is when we each share a passage or a quote that we find interesting or compelling, and we talk about it. Who would you like to go first? I can go first. I have two, if that's okay. They're really short. Of course. Okay. I, I read this book. It's called A Year of Positive Thinking, a quote a day for every day of the year. And when I first spoke with you a couple weeks ago, that's when I read them. And so I highlighted them that day. So the first one says, a single event can awaken within us a stranger totally unknown to us. To live is to be slowly born. I like this quote in particular because I I relate to it in that like one thing can happen and change your whole life, make you a person that you weren't, you didn't know you're capable of being. For me, it was when I was indicted and, and all my, my world that I knew it came crashing down. 
but it was able it allowed me to create it allowed me to be the person I think that I've always been behind the drugs and alcohol and trauma you know it's allowed me to be reborn in a sense to be somebody that I always knew I was and wanted to be but I I was so entrapped by everything else so. that is lovely Do you want to read the other one? Would you please? Okay. So the other one is, I am but one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, God help me, I will do. Um, to me, that that speaks to kind of like giving back. Once you know better, do better, and help others do better. You know, it's kind of just like, if you can do something, do it in, in a positive way, right? Like, I, I think it's just the power of just bringing positivity to people once you found it yourself. So. Yes. Yes. That's a gift that does keep on giving. Thank you. Those are excellent. Terry, for mine, I, I decided to go a different direction okay. because you're really smart. And because Chief Washakie is a legendary figure on the reservation, the town of Fort Washakie bears his name. I've been reading the book by Grace Raymond Hebert, Washakie, Chief of the Shoshones. Right at the beginning, a quote got me that, or a passage got me that I'd like to get your feedback on. Okay. Washakie's steadfast loyalty to the government Despite the ill treatment he had received at its hands in the matter of being required to accept the Arapahoes as guests for a period of something like a half century is indeed remarkable. Our Indian policy, or rather the lack of a sane one, marked by broken treaties, dishonest agents, ignorant and tactless handling of the entire subject, and infliction of untold misery on our Indian wards, has been such that an army man who has had to stand by with hands tied can hardly keep within bounds when writing or speaking of it. The thing I think of when you're reading that, when you're reading about how, you know, how the natives were treated by the government, you know, it made me think of, of, of the history I know in general, the reservation and of native people in general. And I, to me, it, come, it, it makes me think of, of the problems we're facing today stemming from all of that, right? This, the cycle of addiction stems from trauma, intergenerational trauma things that's happened to our ancestors that's carried down something that we don't have control over. That's what it made me think of. I actually did a course on the reservation called Mending Broken Hearts to help people process unresolved trauma. And we spent a whole day learning about intergenerational trauma and being put on the reservations and then being forced into boarding schools and how we still feel those effects today. Like some women uh, participants in the group shared that their parents never said they loved them or hugged them, but it's kind of a learned behavior, you know, maybe their grandparents were in the boarding school and they were forbidden from that type of affection. Right. And it just gets carried down and carried down and until we can even, until we can talk about it and process it, we're, we're going to be stuck with these problems, you know, until we can, until we can treat the root of it, until we talk about it. Some people don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> So that's what that made me think of. Thank you for that insight. That's exactly what I was hoping to get. I appreciate that. Is there anything left that we haven't talked about that you think is important? No, I, I appreciate you for giving me this opportunity. And I just want to reiterate that I've, I've 
I'm I'm just appreciative of this opportunity. You know, I, I yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> I was like trying to see him, but um, that's good. Well, I know you're appreciative and boy, it goes doubly for me. You didn't have to do this. You don't have to bear your soul and your past and your heartaches to people, strangers out on the web waves, but you're doing yeah, you it. That, I, no, that kind of scares me, but it also makes me, makes me, um, I feel like everything that happened with me was very public. So I want, I want my recovery to be very public too. That's what's motivating me to do this. Like I want people to know anyone can be an addict. Like, but anyone can find recovery, no matter how big the fall, right? I had such a public fall and such a intense situation, but anything is possible if by taking accountability and doing the work. I know it's possible. I've done it. Part of me doing this is to show people that you can do anything in recovery. Recovery makes everything possible. That's a fantastic message. And I thank you. And I know the lots of people right now as they're listening to this are saying thank you to you as well. That's our time, Terry Smith. All right. Thanks, Clifford. The Stay Free Forever podcast is recorded and produced by Clifford Fuel, owner of Stay Free Forever LLC, a Colorado and Wyoming company. Stay Free Forever provides adult and youth life skills courses via both e-learning and mailed workbooks, plus Zoom classes for any age group. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Benjamin Fuel. Editing and technical assistance are provided by Mary Tulin. My name is Molly Moore. For more information, go to stayfreeforever.com or email Clifford at stayfreeforever.com.